John chapter 18, and I'm going to read this section, but we're only really going to cover verses 7 to 11 today. So please follow along, either in your Bibles, in John chapter 18. Um, chapters, just the big numbers there in the Bible, and the verses or sentences, as some call them, are just the little numbers there that are alongside. So John 18, and then we'll start in verse 1 or sentence 1 through to verse 11. We'll read, we'll pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll continue. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people this morning. Doesn't matter how we've walked in this morning, what we're feeling, what we've done, that we may just come to you afresh, trusting that you are a good, gracious, loving God. You have brought us here with a purpose and for a reason, to hear from you through your word, and I pray that you make that clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember or may not remember to help unpack the first six verses, we looked at these two C words. If you don't remember what those, those, those were, that's, that's fine. I preached the thing. I had to go back to my notes to try to remember what these, uh, these two C words were. But the first one was the control of Christ. Control. Like we see Jesus is in control of this whole situation that takes place. It doesn't take him by surprise. It's not a matter of Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, this was all part of the Father's plan, his Father's plan for Jesus to be arrested, betrayed in this way, and to end up being crucified, like we said, because that crucifixion was a necessary part of our salvation. But we'll get to that. The second C we looked at was, I don't know if anyone does remember, control and then the... I knew you'd remember the claim of Christ, the claim. Jesus makes this astounding claim. You may remember when, when he's asked to identify himself in the scenario. He's like, so who are you? And he says, um, Jesus of Nazareth looking for him. And he says, I am he. 
And again, you may have like zero knowledge of the Old Testament, but that's where a little bit of understanding and background is helpful because back in the Old Testament, there's this crazy kind of story where Moses, a burning bush, and he's talking to, actually talking to God. And, and, and Moses asks God, how do I tell the people, how do I tell them who you are? And God says, I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And that is the exact same way that Jesus is identifying himself here in front of these 200 plus soldiers, officers, high priests. In other words, he's saying to them, I'm God. The one standing before you is God. And with that, we found the four C's, good. And with that, these men fall back to the ground. He not only identifies himself, he not only kind of describes his identity, he demonstrates his identity. It's almost like as if he's like, okay, in case you're not sure, I want to show you what it's like to be in the presence of God and bang. They all fall to the ground, which we said last time was really the only appropriate response when one is in the presence of God. He is in complete control, makes this crazy claim that he is God, which really is ultimately what led to his death. And this is where we left off last time. This is where we left the scene. 200 armed, 200 plus armed soldiers on the ground at their most vulnerable. And so we pick up the story then from verse 7. And like we have so helpfully there on the screen, I thought to help unpack the next few verses, two more C's. We're going to look at the concern of Christ and also the cup, the cup of Christ. The concern he had for the ones he loved. The concern he had to protect them. And here's what we're going to try to understand here. It's more than a concern just to to make sure that they're not protected physically. It's more than just a concern that they not be arrested. He's got in mind their spiritual concern. He doesn't want them to be harmed spiritually. And I want to show you how we get to that. Earlier in chapter 10... When Jesus is teaching his disciples, he said, well, he says a whole lot of things to his disciples, doesn't he, as he's teaching them, as he's trying to describe to them who, who he is. And one of the things he tells them, I am the good shepherd. And with that, he tells them, I am your disciples. I am your good shepherd. And what does a good shepherd do? He protects his sheep. He looks after them. He protects and cares. He makes sure no wolves are going to get to my sheep. Not one of them will be killed. Not one of them will be lost. And he's essentially saying to them, if, I, if, if my death as any good shepherd is necessary in order to save every one of you, I'll do that. So his disciples are hearing him say things like, I am your good shepherd. I'll, I'll die for you. I love, I'm so concerned for each one of you to the point, I'll die for you if I need to. And then only hours after this event, like they're in the garden, or the side, only hours after this, like, oh, sorry, before this, right? There, it's, um, uh, Jesus is in chapter 17. He's praying. He's praying to his father's long prayer. The disciples are listening into that prayer. And Jesus says this in his prayer. He says, what? He's talking to God now. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And notice, because he's going to repeat this here in chapter 18. Not one of them has been lost. And here's what I want you to see now. While Jesus has been with them, he's telling them time and time again, I genuinely love you. 
I genuinely care for you. He told them, I'm willing to die for you if necessary. I'm your good shepherd. I, I, if this is true, if who I'm saying I am is true, I will make sure not one of you is going to be lost. So up until now, he's, he's said that to them. But the question is, at least I think the question the kind of the, we're left with, okay, Jesus, when push comes to shove, when it really matters, did Jesus actually believe all that he preached and taught? Were they just some nice ideals that he wanted others to live by, but he wasn't really prepared to practice? If you at all have spent any time around Christians, I include myself, hey, sometimes some of us, us Christians, we, we, we preach, we talk up a big game, right, about how we should love one another, how we should live, but then you spend any like, time really closely with those Christians and they're going to let you down, you're going to see some hypocrisy. We don't often, our, our walk doesn't always match our talk. But you know who could never be accused of such hypocrisy? The one we follow, Jesus there's no, he cannot be accused of this because, he, yes, he talked up a big game about his love, his sacrificial love, even to the point of death. And does he follow through? Well, let's look for ourselves. Look at verse 7, if we can show that slide. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of, and he, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. Now look at verse 8. So if you seek me, if I'm the one you want, let these men go. Let these men go. And this, this letting of the men go was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. As best as you can, it's hard. We're 2,000 years removed. Try to put yourself into this scene just for a moment. Just for a moment. Picture the scene. In a very real sense, Jesus and his disciples, they find themselves surrounded by 200 plus, let's call them wolves, ready to attack. But Jesus wasn't going to let not even one of his sheep be taken or lost. And although we're told, because I don't know, again, if you know a little bit about the Bible, there's four biographies of Jesus. John is one of them. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the other biographies of Jesus actually tells us in this account, Jesus, with the word, he could have asked a legion of angels to come and to wipe them out instead of doing that, which he could have, but instead of doing that, he shows these wolves, these attackers, amazing grace, mercy, even towards these ones who were there to take him out. With one word, remember, just, just a moment ago, one word, he made them fall to the ground. With one word, he could have wiped them out. But notice what he does. He calmly, very mercifully, negotiates for their release. He negotiates for their release. I'm the one you want. Release them. Imagine the scene. Imagine the tension going on. All of those soldiers armed. There's, no, there's the high priest and the officers. If there's, I don't know, maybe I've watched too many Liam Neeson movies. Because my mind just goes to these hostage situations. Right? If there's someone who could, who could negotiate someone's release, it's Liam Neeson. I'd go to him every time. Has, anyone, has there, no one seen Taken? The three Takens? No? Okay, we'll, we'll leave that picture there. Go back to the picture this in your mind. 
here's the thing we need to see here. Jesus' concern goes beyond just that they not be arrested in this moment. See, he wants them released because he was concerned about their faith. He's concerned about their faith. And what? Getting arrested and being taken might do to their faith. This is where it starts to get practical, I think, for each one of us today. Let's let's try to think about this. Notice there again in verse 9. Can we show verse 9? Because it says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. We need to understand what's going on here. You see, there was a protocol that the authorities, the the power people back then, they needed to follow. This is protocol. You see, because you know what Jesus had become to them? He'd become like this insurrectionist, this insurgent, this rebel who'd risen up to power. And they thought, man, this Jesus, he's threatening our, our power structures. And to help fuel their fear... You know what? Because they're seeing all these followers. He's, he's amassed a heap of followers. And so, okay, maybe rightly, what do we do with this guy? And so there was a protocol. If anyone was threatening you, you would arrest him, the leader, but also you would have to arrest each one of those followers. That was just what was done. Why? Lest those followers would kind of get any ideas. Lest they would try something, even though their leader was gone. And Jesus knew This was their fate if they were taken and arrested. They too would be arrested. They too would be brought to trial, even sentenced. And so here's a question. What do you think would have happened to them? What do you think would have happened to them and to their faith if he had gotten to that? If the disciples were taken, arrested, sentenced, and even maybe tried and put to death and tortured the way Jesus was, what would have done to their faith? Probably, maybe it's just my opinion, probably their faith was probably going to be completely overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. I mean, think about this. Without getting arrested, what happened to their faith? Without getting arrested, we know what happened to these guys. They all scattered. Nowhere to be found. Without getting arrested, what does Peter do? The leader of the disciples passionately, vehemently denies Christ. That's how they reacted without getting arrested. Imagine being put through the same kind of torture Jesus was about to experience. What was going to happen to them then? Question, would some of them have been lost? Would they have given up completely? Would their faith have failed? And here's what I'm reading from this. It seems like that's what John, who wrote this gospel, it's what he's implying here. Jesus makes sure that they are not arrested and taken in order to make sure that their faith would not fail, that they would not be lost. And I don't know, maybe I'm hearing some objections from you. You say, hold on, I thought that faith couldn't fail. You know, once saved, always saved. But I think that's the point we're seeing here, that yes, get this. We can talk about it and argue about this later. Faith can and will fail unless the Lord doesn't let it. Unless Jesus steps in and intervenes. And if God has given you to Jesus, like he says there in the verse, he says, notice, of those you have given me. If God has given you to Jesus, well then, this is what I love. 
If that's you, and God has given you to Jesus, you know what he has just spent the last chapter doing? Praying that your faith wouldn't fail. I love how one author puts it. He has been praying you into glory. But more than that, he's active throughout our lifetime in those particular situations, like he does here with the disciples, active in protecting us from those things, those situations, those trials, too severe. That would actually be deadly and detrimental to our faith. Maybe you could look at it this way. I love how one of my favorite authors, preachers, puts it, John MacArthur. He says, if I could lose my salvation, like if that were a thing, I would lose it every time. Every time. I can, I can relate to that. If I could lose my salvation, well, then I would lose it every time, which is why it's such good news that our salvation doesn't depend on us, but only on the grace of God. And I, don't, I find that a massive encouragement. Why? That Jesus is so concerned, so active in our spiritual protection, in our spiritual preservation, that, get this, no matter how weak you are, no matter how weak I am, no matter how fast we tend to run and scatter, no matter how often you fall and stumble and even fail, if you belong to him, you cannot be lost. He will not lose you. And he will not allow you to go anything, anything that will somehow be destructive to your faith. If you're here this morning, and this is what's so encouraged, if you're here this morning, if, you're, if you belong to Jesus, if you're even seeking Jesus and wanting to find out more or following him already, it's because of what Jesus has already done for you. He's prayed for you that you would be here. He's right now at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf, praying you into heaven praying you into glory, protecting you along the way to get you there. And here's what's really good news. Jesus has a pretty good track record. He says, I haven't lost any. And he's got no intentions of losing any all the way up until he returns. He promises that. He guarantees that. That's good news for us. He has concerns for his disciples. He's concerned for us. Second and last point, the cup of Christ. That's the last of the C words, and I'll start bringing my props over for this one. I'm not usually a props guy. I don't do props very well or jokes or things like that, but we're going to try this time. It just worked. It's a long, dramatic entrance. (laughs) Can we show from verse 10, please? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? Again, do your best to to put yourself into that scene, into that situation. It seems like, I don't know, but it seems like Jesus has successfully struck a deal with these guys, right? To have them let go, to have only him taken. But then for some reason, in this moment, Peter decides that it's a good idea to go ahead 
and to, to chop some guy's ear off. The question is, could the timing be any worse? Man, you're about to be let go. You're about to be freed. Could his timing be any worse? I, know, I imagine Jesus kind of telling, trying to defuse the situation. Hey, everyone, I'm the ringleader. I'm in charge here. I'm the one you want. Release these guys. These guys are innocent. They're harmless. And Peter's like, harmless? I'll show you harmless. Whips out his sword, which is probably more like a dagger, and goes for what seems to be the only one in the whole group who isn't armed, who doesn't have a weapon. We're told it's a servant. And we're given his name, Malchus. And it's interesting that we're given his name here. Because remember, it's John who's writing this, and John's an eyewitness to all this. And he's writing an eyewitness account. And the way that eyewitness accounts were, were documented, they were given, if, when they give detail like this, it's a way of John saying, hey, I'm giving you this guy's name. This can be verified. You can go find out for yourself. And I, want, I wonder if anyone did. Like, I'm, I'm that guy who probably would have, I would have investigated, find out. Because we're told in another account, Jesus, you, you know what happens, takes, I don't know if he takes the ear or what he does there, somehow his ear is recreated and healed. Jesus heals this guy. And I would have been like, man, I've got his name, if I lived back then. You know, you know I walk up behind him, see, is there a scar? Is there a piece missing? I'd be fascinated. I don't know if anyone... I would have done that. But he includes his name as a way to say that this could be verified. And, and here's the thing with Malchus. You, you know who didn't leave the garden that night wondering whether this really was the Christ? It was Malchus. He experienced firsthand the, power, the healing power of God in his own life. And you know what else we see that's interesting in here? Back then, culturally, um, an injury to a slave or to a servant, it wasn't of particular interest to many people because they were, they were really just that, a servant or a slave. But what does Jesus do here? He shows that there is no, not even one, not even the least of these, is insignificant enough to come under my care, my protection, my healing, my power. By human standards, he was an insignificant servant, but not in Jesus' eyes. And one more thing from this scene that I think is quite incredible. You remember, just a moment ago, by the power of Jesus' word, all these soldiers on the floor, overwhelmed. Minutes pass. Now, they're seeing Jesus, the same guy, miraculously heal this guy's ear in front of their eyes. And yet... Still, so hardened, so blinded by their own sin, they're still not convinced. They still they refuse to see it. And I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and you've just been all these years hardened, blinded by your own sin. I mean, you've seen firsthand who Jesus is and what he can do. And yet you refuse to bow down to him as Lord and Saviour like these soldiers refuse to. The good news is maybe you're here this morning because you're ready to do that, to give your life to Christ in this way. Back to our friend Peter, though. Decides to take matters into his own hands. And at this moment, you would think that the deal was off, right? You'd think, no deal. 
More than that, here's the part that I don't get. In a sense, the disciples aren't innocent anymore, are they? Now they are guilty. Peter, as their representative, has just made them all guilty now. He's taken out a sword. He's first strike. If I was a soldier, I'm thinking, well, maybe probably all of these disciples, they're all armed and dangerous. And I was just waiting for the first, the first of them to strike so I could take them all out. And again, maybe it's my, my, I've watched too many action movies, right? And, and too many, like SWAT, you know, those SWAT movies or those police videos on YouTube. Because I'm, I'm thinking, this doesn't make sense to me. Why isn't in that moment Peter wrestled to the ground by all of these soldiers? In that moment, right? That would make sense. Like, for example, here's what I picture is happening. happening. I don't know if you've seen those um, like real-life police videos where um, you have a suspect and he's been cornered and he's surrounded by police. And it's just this tense situation where even that suspect, right, any gesture of even like going towards his pockets or reaching for a gun, what, would ha- what happens in that moment? Sprayed by hundreds of bullets by all those police who were there. That's what I'm thinking. Is if, like I'm thinking, if I'm the soldiers, I'm just waiting for the first one of them to strike so that we can just full-on assault, take them all out, because that's what we want to do. We really want to do. We want to get rid of them. They've just given us a reason to do it. That doesn't happen here. Instead of wrestling Peter to the ground or taking him out, it's almost as if they ignore him completely, ignore what he just did completely, and they go for the the only one innocent guy who's there. What's going on? doesn't make sense to me. Unless, and here's where we're going with all this, unless maybe, just maybe, what we see going on here, the way this story unfolds, is we're seeing on a smaller scale what is actually going on behind the scenes, spiritually, on a bigger scale. Because it's like there's this great exchange taking place where the one innocent guy is being captured while the guilty are going free. It's like God allows the story to play out like this in order to show us how salvation works. Can Can we see verse 11 again? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. This is not the place for that. Put your sword away. Put it in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And this is where the cup comes into it. Jesus' cup. Again, some background is helpful here, but let me, let me try to help you. The cup is a reference back to the Old Testament. It's symbolic A lot of people aren't going to like what's going to be said in the the next few minutes. That cup that's being referenced is symbolic of the righteous judgment of God. That cup that is mentioned time and time again in the Old Testament is kind of this cup. And what's filled within that cup, we're told, is the wrath, the anger, the righteous judgment of God. And you know who drinks that cup? Anyone who does wickedness. That cup is reserved for anyone who does wickedness. Wickedness. It's, it's a cup that all sinners deserve to drink. Which is why, if you know anything about Jesus, you should be asking, why, of all people, does God give Jesus this cup? Why him? The one truly innocent man to have ever walked the earth, why does he get the cup? 
Why is God's righteous judgment for sin about to be poured out on him? He's done nothing wrong. Why does he need to drink from the cup of God's anger? Why does Jesus need to drink from the cup of God's judgment? It should be those who are evil and wicked who drink from that cup. Those who lie and cheat and steal and kill, not Jesus. Why does he drink the cup? And let's try to think about it like this. Try to, try to think about it like this with me. Think about when someone has, has sinned against you. Someone has wronged you. Maybe they've cheated you. Maybe they've lied to you, stolen from you, abused you in some way. And in that moment, you may have felt pain or likely a sense of righteous anger and indignation that they would hurt you in that way. And it's right that we feel this way because they've sinned against you. It's right. Now, what we learn from the Bible is that when someone sins against you, you know who else gets righteously angry and indignated by that? God does. Because he loves you. He created you. This should be encouraging to us. It means that God cares about justice. He's not going to let evil go unpunished because he cares for you so deeply. But now, if we're going to be consistent with this, because I don't know if you know where we're headed with this, like... We're going to be consistent with this train of thought. If it's true that when others sin against me, God is rightly angry at them, well, then it is also true that when I sin against others, well, then maybe God is righteously angry at me. Because it's more than likely, most of you aren't too unlike I am. I'm sure you've cheated someone before, hurt someone, lied, gossiped. And God cares about justice. And if I've given others the right to be righteously angry at me, well, then I've given God the right to be righteously angry at me too. See, maybe, maybe you've come this morning only to hear about the love of God. But if I'm going to be faithful to the text, this text in the Bible, we need to hear about God's justice as well. And this is where the cup comes into the equation. Can we show you that verse? This is what Romans 2, another part of the Bible that says is true of every one of us. It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. Scary stuff. Super scary stuff. It's what the Bible says. See, there's a real sense. Every time we sin, we provoke the anger of God. The question is, do we drink of that cup straight away? Because I'm sure each one of you know people, friends, family, they have no concern for God. They're living sinful lives. And they'll tell you, I don't feel that God is angry at me. Well, because it's, it's, not, it's, it's being, each one of us has a cup. They have a cup. And that's being stored up for the day of judgment. So, if that's true, maybe you think, oh, that's rubbish, Roy. 
I don't believe in you. Well, if it's true, stay with me. And we all have a cup. I didn't have 60, 70 cups, so I'm going to use five cups to kind of represent all of us. Is that, is that all right? I'll use these five cups to represent the whole church here, each one of us. And what that means, right, if this is true, if what it's saying there is true, each one of us has a cup and we're storing up wrath upon wrath every time we sin against God, against others. It means, okay, every time you cheated on someone, by the way, this dirty water represents sin. I know you probably uh, pictured that by now. Every time you hurt someone, every time you cheated someone, hey, your cup's being filled. That's storing up. Every, every, time, every time you downloaded something illegally off the internet, your cup's being filled. Every time some of you young ones, you speed, cup's being filled. Let's get a bit, oh, no, that's serious, but let's get a bit more serious. Every time you sleep around, cup's being filled. Every time you cheat on your taxes, cup's being filled. Maybe you expect me to go for like the big, the big sins that, they, you know, that preachers and pastors usually talk. No, it doesn't matter because someone is affected by each one of these sins. And ultimately, God is angry and his anger is provoked by each one of these. question is, how do these cups get emptied? Because if all this is true, the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God is to be poured out on each one of us. And each one of us needs to drink of this cup. And not one of us can handle that and live. Unless there is someone who can. And that's, that's the point. Unless there is someone who can handle the judgment, the wrath of God. There is someone, and that's why I use this cup. It's red, kind of the blood of Jesus. I was just trying to make it as clear as possible for all of us. What if what Jesus means by him drinking the cup is what? Because in this moment, up until this moment, he is still the perfect, holy, righteous, blameless Son of God. He has done nothing wrong. But he's like, Peter, leave it to me. I've got it. Because what I'm about to do, I'm about to drink the cup that each one of you, all of your sins. Again, if you can imagine somehow each one of your sins, your accumulated lifetime of sins, being poured out on Jesus on the cross in that moment. Everything we've ever done wrong. Every time you've hurt someone, every time you've hurt God, put, placed, poured out God's wrath and anger, justice poured out on him on the cross. And in that one act where he does sacrifice his blood, which we remember just a moment ago, God's anger and wrath is satisfied once and for all so that we did not need to drink of this cup. And we never will because we never could. It's amazing. Uh, we've, we've talked about this before, and I'm finishing up now. But, um, you know, about a month ago, we had this scare 
uh, mostly like Monica, Natalie, their house, the George's River area, Picnic, Menai, the fires, right? And you, you know how it all started, like back burning or patch burning, controlled burning. There was good intentions, but as you would know, when, as Duncan explained to me, when, when done poorly, like it can be a real problem. But when it's done well, it's crucially important to people's safety, isn't it? Control burning, patch burning. And the idea is, the idea is you burn a patch around the area that you want to protect, that you don't want to be hit with the full force of that fire. So that when the fire does, and if it comes through, you know who's safe, you know who's protected, whoever's inside that patch. And that's really, that really is what it comes down to, what Jesus has done for us at the cross. See, it's like when we are in Christ, when we believe that this is true, and we say, Jesus, I need you to drink that cup on my behalf, it's like there's a whole patch that is now around us. So when judgment day does come, so when the justice of God is revealed, and it will be revealed on all people in its full fury, you know who's protected and safe? Anyone who's in Christ. Because fire cannot destroy what has already been destroyed by fire. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's, that's all really I want to say about this passage. We no longer drink from this cup. If you are in Christ, we now get to drink from another cup, which many of us already did. This cup, you need to think about it in fear. This one, there's no longer any fear because there's no longer any condemnation. This cup, we, we drink it out of gratitude and remembrance and thankfulness because of what Christ did for us. And that is the invitation for each one of us here this morning. If you have not yet come under the saving protection of Christ, I would ask and plead that you would not leave here this morning without doing that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, so much that your word is given to us to help, help us understand the purpose of life, where we fit into your purposes for all things, because in it we get to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And Father, I pray and I ask and I plead that through your Holy Spirit working in each one of us, that even today we would have even just a clearer understanding of what it is you've done for us. A clearer understanding of your hatred for sin. But also a clearer understanding of the lengths that you have gone to to graciously save us. So that we can freely say our salvation is not dependent on us, only on you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.